Today we conclude, though, our short but thoughtful look at the covenant of Hagerstown Church. And so I want to invite you, if you've got a, a copy of that black hardback Bible in front of you, would you pull that out? Or you can look online, hagerstownchurch.org, under what we believe. You can see a copy of our member covenant there. You have your prayer directory. It's also in there. I've been walking through this. We won't read the entire covenant together this morning. I do want to just point out some high points from it. This won't be on the screen at the moment. What has Hagerstown Church covenanted together to do? What have we promised to do one for another? Well, we promised to submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. And we do that chiefly through his word. And so we are a, a word-driven church. Everything that we say, everything that we do, everything that we teach is founded, hopefully, on the very words of God, the Bible. And so we hold ourselves to that. We promise that we'll work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. A, a spirit of unity that's already been given to us by the spirit. The spirit that we have fellowship with this morning. We've prayed that we would, or promised that we would walk together in brotherly love, one with the other. Even when things are difficult, we'd look out for each other, we would forgive each other, we would faithfully admonish each other, we wouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves, we would gather regularly, we would pray for each other. We'll endeavor to bring up any under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teach our children to know and love Jesus, and also in, and challenge them and encourage them to submit to God's word. We promise to rejoice with each other and happiness, bear each other's burdens. We promise to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, remembering that since we have been buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, there's now a special obligation on us to live a new and holy life. We've promised one to the other before God that we'll work together for the furtherance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we practice its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. And we'll contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel. We've promised one another that if we find ourselves leaving this place as soon as possible, we'll unite with some other like-minded church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. This is a heavy, heavy promise. It's been said, and we'll begin here and we'll end here with this idea that this is a crushing burden. To think that we would do all of these things continually, perpetually until he comes, and that we would not fail in them. And not only that we wouldn't fail, but that we wouldn't do it legalistically as if we were trying to earn God's favor, but we would do these things because we already have his favor. It's quite a task. And now you'll notice at the very bottom of our covenant, at the very end, is this statement. This is the main idea for this morning, the last portion. It says this, the main idea, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. What we find here at the end of our church covenant is a benediction. Maybe you know what a benediction is. I often have to get a dictionary out. And so I've done that for you this morning. On the screen you'll see what, a definition, what the definition of benediction is. A benediction is the pronouncement of God's favor upon an assembled congregation. 
It's a pronouncement of God's favor upon an assembled congregation. Now, I didn't come up with that definition. I I stole it right out of Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible. In other words, though, it's a declaration of God's blessing upon a gathered group of saints. And every time that we read and renew our covenant together as a church, we are declaring a blessing on each other. Now you might say, well, where did we come up with this benediction? Where did we get this, Pastor Josh? Did you write this? No, I'm not that smart. We actually stole it right out of the Bible. That's right. If you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll see verse 14, which is the final verse of this letter or book. If you're using the black hardback Bible in front of you, I'm welcoming you to do that. Our text is found this morning on page 1153. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Oftentimes we'll read long portions of text and scripture in the morning, right before the sermon. And you'll know that uh, the longer the text, often the longer the sermon. Well, don't be, uh, don't be confused. This won't be a short one. We're only going to read one verse. But I'll see what I can do. This is what the Word of God says. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 Verse 14, it's the exact main idea. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's ask God to bless his blessing. Father, this is our prayer this morning. Along with the Apostle Paul, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with us. We know that it's with us in the past we were saved by grace through faith. Father, would you help us to see that it is with us, not just in the past, but in the present. It's with us now as we look to fulfill this covenant. Father, may we see the love of God demonstrated on the cross of Christ. May we see this morning that that same love that sent the Son to the cross to shed his blood for us, that it is also that love is still covering us. This morning. Father, you don't love us because we've kept the covenant. You love us because you kept the covenant, and now you are enabling us to do that. Weak as we are, you love us. And Father, you were far from us because we were far from you. And yet you drew near, you fellowshiped with us. And Jesus, when you left, you gave us your spirit. And he's not left us. He's with us even now. And so, Spirit, we recognize your presence with us now. We we recognize the benefits that you bring to us. This unity that we have afforded in Christ, you apply to this church now. Because of these truths, because of these benefits, because of this Trinitarian redemption work, we pray that you'd be glorified and we would be helped. And we ask all of these things, Jesus, in your name. And for your glory. Amen. Here at the end of this incredible letter, we find what I like to call the great benediction of Trinitarian redemption. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? A bunch of big words. Makes me feel smart. The great benediction of Trinitarian redemption. We've already understood or worked to understand what benediction actually means. It's a pronouncement. It's a declaration of God's blessing upon a a gathered group, upon the saints, upon the church. 
But here we see this great benediction, this great blessing. And what is it? It's of Trinitarian redemption. I want to take a few moments to unpack those two aspects of this great benediction. Two aspects, each of them having three components. The first, Trinitarian. The first aspect of the Trinity. You'll notice in verse 14, our only verse really for the text this morning, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What we see here is an indication of, of these three persons and their unique relationship one to the other. Paul lists three persons and one of them being God. We come to understand that often when we see just the word God by itself, it, it is a reference to God the Father, the first person in the Trinity. The scripture declares, though, that between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they are all truly one God. The scriptures teach us that clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And yet at the same time, within the Godhead, within God, there are three distinct persons. Make no mistake that each of the three persons here listed in this benediction, each of them have been called God on their own. God the Father was, is clearly many times declared to be God, but one particular is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Of the Son, is Jesus God? Well, we see that clearly in John chapter 20, verse 28. My Lord and my God. What about the Holy Spirit? Is he also God? Well, the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, would clearly demonstrate to us that he also is God. More than that, each at varying points in the Scripture, throughout the New and Old Testaments, they're each described with the characteristics of deity. Each of them have been, given, have been described in a way that would lead us to think that they have the, the same attributes of God, the one God of the Old Testament. Each of them are able to... Uh, not be bound by geography, able to be present at any point in time, anywhere. We see this in Psalm 139, Matthew chapter 19 of the Father and Matthew 28 of Jesus Christ himself. We see that they're described, each of them, as being all-knowing in Romans chapter 11, Matthew chapter 9, and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We see that the, each of them are all-powerful. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, speaking of Jesus. Romans 15 of God and 1 Peter 1 of the Holy Spirit. Each of them are God. And finally, there's the three-in-oneness within the Godhead. Just prior to Jesus' ascension, Jesus told the disciples, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is in Matthew chapter 28. And what's interesting, if you could peer behind and underneath the English language to the Greek translation, what we see there is the word name is in the singular even though Jesus mentions three persons. There are the three distinct persons within the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This unity of three, this trinity, it's also very clearly reflected in this benediction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. It's a beautiful truth. Now it doesn't mean that we understand the trinity now fully. But we can accept this doctrine because the scriptures clearly teach it. So in this text, we see the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
This blessing is given, declared in their name and by their power. And while this might be a wonderful text for us to turn to say Jehovah's Witnesses who would say that there is not a trinity, there is only one person in the Godhead, this text doesn't necessarily refute that or totally establish it, but it does help us to see there is a trinity. There are three persons in the Godhead, and yet that's not the main point of this text. Paul didn't give this benediction so that the, the church there in Corinth would be able to refute all these other false doctrines, but he did give it for another reason. He wanted them to know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were working together, and they were with them, and the blessings of the Trinity were upon the church there in Corinth. And here we're going to transition. One of the aspects that we see of this benediction is the Trinity, but there's another one. And that's of redemption. You see the final greeting, the benediction, it mentions all, all the three persons of the Trinity. And the stress does not, though, fall on these three persons, but it does fall on their benefits. Benefits of grace, benefits of love and of fellowship. And each of these experienced by believers on a Trinitarian level. So let's take each of these underneath of uh, redemption. See in verse 14 again, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The first component of this benediction when it comes to the blessings received from the Trinity is grace. Simply put, grace means favor. One theologian, John Calvin, he says that grace speaks of the whole blessing of redemption. While it is the favor of God, it is the favor of Jesus Christ extended to his people, this word grace is a euphemism. It speaks, it's, it's greater than this idea of just favor. But it's speaking specifically of the work of redemption, the work of the Trinity in redemption, backing this idea up that it's more than just God's favor through Jesus the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, this should be on the screen for you. you turn back just a few pages in your, in your Bible as well. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. The Apostle writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that grace? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. This is grace. This is the work of Jesus. He who was rich, he emptied himself. He set aside his own righteousness and in a sense he became poor. He gave that righteousness to us. He took on our sin, himself becoming poor, being punished for our sin and in that we have become rich. Because of the nature of Paul's letter, he's encouraging the church to donate to the saints in Jerusalem and their poverty. And he's saying, hey, you, you Corinthian church, you need to give to that if you can. He, because of this, uh, this is the flavor of the book or this letter, he uses financial terms to describe the gospel or the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's, what's interesting is he describes grace in a past tense work, a past tense sense. And yet in chapter 12, he references a benefit for us when he references the grace of God, and he references it in the present tense. What does that mean? It means that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is still working in us today. It hasn't just affected for the Christian salvation. 
but it's still yet present and working and benefiting us today. The Apostle Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, they're probably on the same page in your Bible. If you just look back a few verses, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians rather, 12, verses 9 and 10, Scripture say, But he said to me, Jesus speaking to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, Jesus says, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me, the apostle says. For the sake of Christ then, in verse 10, I'm not sure if you can see that there on the screen. But for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And how can he say this? Because of the grace of Jesus Christ. The same grace that the Apostle Paul, at the end of his letter to the church in Corinth, says that he wishes upon the people. This grace of, of Christ, it's the means by which God's love reaches the believer. And this is the second aspect, or the second component, I should say, of redemption that we see in this benediction. Love. The love of God. Love, or in the Greek, it's agape. It means unconditional, sacrificial love. It's the type of love that God the Father has for his church. It's the type of love that God has for his children. Agape love. It doesn't depend on the world's criteria for love. Such as what we find beautiful, what we find precious, or even what we've enjoyed, uh, even if we've enjoyed being around this particular person or this thing, it's not like that. The love of God here described this agape love, it's not transactional. It's not based on what you can give. It's not based on what you've received. Not only is it not transactional, it's not romantic. It's not lust-filled. It's not flighty. It's not fleeting. It's not based on shared experience or even mutual desire, liking the same things. So often Christians, we, we, as we think of the love that Christ has for us or the Father has for us and the love that we should have one for the other, we, we define love differently. And not in an unconditional sense. We've got to understand that the type of love that God has for us and that he calls us to have for others is completely different from the love of this world. Jesus clearly stated by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now we know that several Greek words translate into the English as love. And you might say, is this the same love here that God has for us? Or is this the kind of love that we have brother to brother, shared experience, mutual interests? Or is this the romantic sort of love? Well, I'm sure you know I wouldn't be referencing it if it was the first, or if it wasn't the first. It is, in fact, the unconditional love that the Father has for his children. He says, our Lord and Savior, that we will have that one for another. The love of God extended to us, that we extend to others, the supernatural love, it's amazing. It's forgiving. It's unconditional. When you think of the love church that has been given to you, it demonstrated for you at your salvation 
Think of the cross of Christ. The grace of Christ demonstrates the love of the Father, Romans 8 or 5, 8 says. When you think of that, you might imagine, well, this is in the past tense. The love that he has is still there for me now. Well, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 and, 30, 31 and following, it's, it answers that question. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to this line of reasoning. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against his church? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope you're starting to see something. Often at the end of a letter, at the beginning of a letter, we'll just skip over the beginning introductory comments and the concluding comments and thoughts. We just want to get to the meat, to the heart of the matter. Often when we pray to God, we'll, at the end of it, we'll throw some type, sort of a tagline on. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We don't think of them. But you should know this, when the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, finishes out his letter to the church at Corinth, he's not just rambling along. He's given them some heavy, heavy instructions. He's given them some stern warnings. And at the end of his book, he wants them to know what they'll need to continue to accomplish these things. And now maybe you see why we have this tacked on to the end of our covenant as a church. Because we recognize this. If we are to complete all of these things, we need the grace of Jesus. Yes, in the past, but we need the grace of Jesus in the present. Yes, of course, we need the love of God in the past, but we need the love of God in the present. And even more than that, as Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through whom? Through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that leads us to our final piece here. When I get grace from Jesus, I'm made known to know of the fact that the Father loves me. Because the Father loves me and he showed that love for me by sending his Son. And most marvelous of all of these truths, as they come to the climax here, is that we have communion now with God. We have communion with God through his spirit. And that's this third component of this second aspect of this benediction of redemption 
we see fellowship. And fellowship means it's been translated, this word uh, in the Greek, it's been translated as sharing, contribution, communion, participation. And that word that's used, that underlying word, it has to do with that which is in common or belonging to several or of which several are partakers. This idea, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It could mean our fellowship that is of the Spirit or with the Spirit, the Spirit communing with us, or it could mean the fellowship that he gives us that we now have with others. And really, theologians have wrestled back and forth in an amicable way as to which one is actually true. Is this in the subjective or objective sense? And, and honestly, I would say it's, it's both. In my opinion, it's not one or the other. It's both. This fellowship of the Spirit that we have is with the Spirit from God, but it's also with our brothers and sisters in the church. What Paul is reminding the church of is, as they think of their instructions that he's given to them, and as we think of our covenant together today, we think we have the fellowship of the Spirit what that does for us is it helps us to understand the deepening of, of, our, of understanding of our participation in the Holy Spirit and our participation one with the other in this community we call the church. Believers have fellowship vertically with God through Jesus Christ and horizontally with other saints. And that vertical fellowship, it precedes and makes possible the horizontal fellowship with believers. Tyndale's Dictionary says, Communion with God results in common participation with other believers in the Spirit of God and God's blessings. Which, by the way, it's what we're doing right now. Jesus promised to send his Spirit to the church. This Spirit that would give unity, that would create a love, an agape love, one for the other. That would allow us to communicate with the Father even as the Spirit prays for us and through us, even when we don't know how to pray, as Romans chapter 8 says. The truth of the matter is, Jesus promised that his spirit would come and have fellowship with us, and he did, and he stayed. His spirit is still with us today. You say, well, Jesus sent his spirit, his Holy Spirit, that third person in the Trinity, so many years ago. And yes, he is still with us today. Speaking of the presence of God in the life of the believers, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 remind us. Now the context is different, it's separate, but the, the point is still the same. He says in verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. Don't think that you're lacking. Don't think that you won't be cared for. Don't be so upset that you won't be provided for. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He goes on to say, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, he quotes. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have the fellowship of the Spirit. Paul reminds us this morning. He's here. He's with us. He's by our side. We have partnership with him. We have oneness. His wishes are becoming our wishes. His desires, ours. One theologian, when he was reflecting on this passage and this particular idea that we have fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship of the Spirit, he says this, How wonderful is it 
to have the privilege of this divine fellowship. That we need never be alone again. That we can at any moment turn to him for advice and direction. That we may draw on his resources for the supply of every need. That it is possible to exhaust or even tax his willingness to counsel and succor. And there is no kind of service or suffering into which he is not prepared to enter with us. Surely if he would but give ourselves or if we would but give ourselves time to realize this marvelous truth, there would be no room for the despondency which at times threatens to deprive us of heart and hope. As we consider the work that God has called for us to do, as we consider the tribulation that we face on a collective and, and individual levels, we are to recognize. Encouraged by the words of this benediction, that his spirit was with us, and his spirit is now with us, and he will never, ever leave us. Paul wishes that the Corinthian church would have a deepening of their understanding of the participation in the Holy Spirit. They would really understand that the spirit is with them, fellowshipping, participating with them, and now giving this ability for us to participate in fellowship one with the other. It was through the grace of Christ displayed on the cross that God demonstrated his love for us. And that believers come to now participate in the Spirit's life and so form the community of the church. In this age. And so we see the components of the two aspects of this great benediction. It's comprised of God the Son and His grace, God the Father and His love, and God the Spirit and His fellowship that He extends to us. And now let's put these things together. How does this help us today? How does this even apply to our covenant? Let's look at four words quickly there in that verse or in that main idea. The first is may. May. The may is not a may be. It's emphasizing the prayer or requesting aspect of this blessing. When we ask this blessing at the end of our covenant recital, one to the other, we are not saying maybe this will happen. But we are praying to God, may this happen. And we're asking, in fact, according to his revealed will and promised plan. This is one of the greatest blessings that we can pray. It's one of the greatest prayers that we can pray with the most confidence. Why? Because we're not saying maybe this will happen. We're saying may it happen by your name. You've promised it will happen. You've planned it to occur. And so when we pray this blessing one on the other, we ask it in hope. We ask it in faith. And we ask it in confidence. His grace, his love, and his fellowship, they are ours already. And they are promised to us eternally. And again, it's why a prayer of benediction like this can sound so much like a declaration. Because it will happen. It's sure. And so may. Now let's look at with. 
Perhaps this is the most beautiful word in this entire verse. With grace, love, and fellowship are ours. However, these blessings that we receive from the Trinity is not the only blessing that we get. Not only do we get, church, the blessing from God, but we get God. We get the gift and we get the giver. You'll not receive the gift of God's grace and love and fellowship if you've not first received him. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, kind of gives us this idea. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We get all things. We get grace, we get love, and we get fellowship. But church, more importantly, we get Jesus. We get God himself. Jesus, whose name would be called what? Emmanuel, which is to say God with us. The high point of God's blessing is his presence and his person there with us. Most important, God's own presence. Leviticus chapter 26, God promised his people, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. What a beautiful promise that we see fulfilled in the New Testament and in the Old, but in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt among his people. He did not abhor us. He dwelt with us. He walked among us. He was our God, and we became his people. Church, he is with us. Physical needs, earthly peace, family, all of these things that we want and even declare that we need, they're not unholy, they're not irrelevant, they're not insignificant, but they are nothing in comparison to God himself dwelling with us. All these other things, they can be taken away from us. All these physical blessings that we enjoy, even right now in this air-conditioned room, all of this can be taken from us. And yet his presence will never, ever be removed from us. The center and high point of God's blessing on his church is his presence. He is with us. We get God and we get his blessings. Also, look. You see the word us. Us. You could throw in us all. I think it's helpful for us to remember that as we unpack and really apply this principle, this benediction, that it's, it's being applied to us all. Oftentimes when we open the presence that Jesus gives to us, this gift of grace and gift of love and gift of presence, we think of it as being, as being a gift just to you individually or to me individually. And yet this is a gift that we're to open together. It's a promise that he gives to us all collectively as his universal church gathered together in local outposts throughout this world. We gather and we open this gift together. This blessing we receive this morning as we sing and pray and preach God's word one to another. We receive this blessing. We're reminded of these truths together that don't just apply to one of us or a few of us, but to all those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And the last word that I want to think about this morning, it's there in the covenant, and perhaps it's in your copy of God's word there at the end. Some copies don't include it. It's this word, amen. Do you know what amen means? It's a declaration as well. It means it's true. It's true. And this is where I want to end this morning. I want to end with asking the question, as you consider this idea of God's great declaration of blessing upon his people, that is both Trinitarian in nature and redemptive in nature, do you say this morning that it is true? When we quote this covenant one to the other, we're saying, yes, it's true. It's true. And there's this word of warning I want to give you. I've mentioned it a moment ago. Benedictions are often overlooked. Often we think of them as pithy, short, meaningless, empty words. We mumble them. We spill past them in our scripture readings and our prayers and even at the end of services. The answer to this question, though, how are we going to keep this covenant How are we going to be faithful in this covenant? How are we not going to become legalistic in this covenant? It would be unbearable for us if it weren't for Jesus who is with us, whose grace has been poured out and God's love that is with us even now and empowered by that spirit who is fellowshipping with us now. So don't spill past, don't raise past this benediction. Let's say it together as we close this service out. There on the screen, the main idea. Say it with me. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Father, what a glorious, glorious promise that we have this morning. You've called us to so much. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've created us as new creatures. And even now you're sanctifying us. You're changing us into the image of Christ. Father, you've called us to an incredible work. To image Jesus to this dying, lost world. It's difficult. We face tribulation. We face legalism. We face self-love. We face unforgiveness. And Father, how can we continue to fulfill this covenant apart from your grace and your love and your fellowship? Father, we can bear this burden. We can live this new and holy life because of those three truths. Because you are redeeming us. Our Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this glorious promise. This hope that we have. This promise that we can make to each other. And we make that in light of the work of the Trinity on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand and sing this morning. We're going to sing that beautiful old hymn. What can wash away your sin? What can make you whole again? What can help you to fulfill the covenant that we have one with the other? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.